0: Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. It's the love of democracy that has to compensate for the pain and conflict of the actual contests of democracy. And it's the love of democracy that has to sort of re-motivate a person to reach out and incorporate the losers and to ask the question of, okay, well, given your loss, what's the way of acknowledging that or what's the way of thinking about what question comes next for you?
1: Hello, welcome to the Client Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Man, this this episode is so good. It is so good. Um, not saying that about me, but but Danielle Allen. She's the director of Harvard's Edmund Safra Center for Ethics. She is a political theorist, a classicist, a philosopher. She is the lead investigator on the Democratic Knowledge Project. Uh, She's the author of a bunch of amazing books, um, including recently Our Declaration and Cuz. But uh, a couple years back, this amazing, amazing book called Talking to Strangers, uh, which we're going to talk about a lot here. This is going to be Talking to Strangers Week on The Ezra Klein Show. We have another author of a book called Talking to Strangers coming in just a couple of days. But I've been following a bunch of threads in the past couple of months about democracy on this show, about political democracy, who can vote and how we participate, about economic democracy, about what kind of control we have over our economic lives. And then also about democratic practice. How do we live in a democratic way? How do we relate to each other inside of a democracy? How do we see each other as fellow members of a democracy? What does that mean to do? And. Alan just somehow was able to bring these together for me in a way that just clicked a bunch of stuff into into place in a really in a really lovely way. It was a real joy to do this conversation, as I think you'll hear. Um, I'm not going to try to cheapen it by describing it too much. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, Kleinshow at Vox.com. Here's Danielle Allen. Danielle Allen, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here, Ezra. Uh,
1: I'm thrilled you're here, uh, in, in part because... You've done such remarkable work on democracy as a practice, which has become one of the the themes that the show has been obsessed with. So I thought I'd, I I tend to start with like the big abstract questions, but here I'd actually like to begin with the more individual ones. What does democracy demand of us? Like, how do we judge if we individually are doing democracy right?
0: That is a great and gigantic question. So you're starting with the big stuff. Um, (laughs) You know, let me just actually start by saying that I love democracy, and I have to sort of just acknowledge that motivation up front because it can come off as slightly weird. You know, like most people love—I do love people, but like usually that's where things start, right? But I also actually like love democracy, and the reason I do has something to do with my belief that it is the single best political form available to human beings for maximizing human empowerment and permitting every person to really develop to their full potential, so it's hard for me to fully convey just how deep that love of democracy goes in me. But I have to say that first, because then that's what is kind of the basis for answering your question. Can I
1: ask where that came so, from?
0: You know, it's a kind of question I have for myself. To some extent, I think it's my family, my dad. You know, I come from a family of people who, in various ways, have been committed to the possibilities of democracy. My grandfather founded one of the first NAACP chapters in northern Florida, at a period when the you know KKK was very active, so that was a very courageous thing to do. And there's just somehow, like on both sides of my family, mom and dad, deep in our DNA, a belief in self-government as the thing that makes human life um, the best possible um, and gives you the potential to have the best possible life. So that's why. So that then comes around to answering your question, because how do you know when you succeed? Um, You succeed when um, you genuinely have the chance to govern yourself by contributing to the decisions your community is making. And where you can sort of say, say, look, I know I contributed to that. I did that. Um, I am part of that big conversation that generated that decision. Um, and when you can feel that you're helping to steer the whole of your community, um, I think that is what the success of democracy feels like.
1: But what if you are participating in the democracy and instead of feeling like you're steering, you feel like you're losing? Like, what is the role for, is most for you? Which how most of us right. feel. Right. <laughs>
0: yeah. That is like basically the way most people feel most of the time. Um, So for me, that's the kind of critical problem in the current state of affairs in our democratic life. So how do you feel if you do feel like you're losing all the time? Um, For one thing, I mean, I think it is a hard fact that any life in a democracy involves losses as well as wins. And so a part of having a sort of sturdy ethos of democratic citizenship is to know how to process that loss and stay in the game. But in order for that to work for people, the game has got to be worth playing um, which means that over time, you know, you got to win some as well as losing. And there's got to be a sense of sharing and a common enterprise um, where wins come round again. Um, and so, if we can't build a system that has compromises and turn taking in it, then honestly, like, there's no reason for anybody to be committed to it. So, that's sort of the hardest part, I think, about democratic life is the thing itself, the mechanism we're operating together, has to actually be worthy of our energy and commitment, because democracy does ask a lot of its citizens.
1: So you have a, a line, or two lines, I guess, in your book, which is wonderful, and I recommend very much to people talking to strangers. And you write, Thank you. the hard truth of democracy is that some citizens are always giving up things for others. Only vigorous forms of citizenship can give a polity the resources to deal with the inevitable problem of sacrifice. And that tension right there between giving something up and how do you get paid back if you're not winning the fight you thought you were in Feels like the, the 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 nut of a lot of our current political problems to me. So I wanted to to start this part here. How do we define sacrifice?
0: So that is a great question, and I do use the concept of sacrifice to talk about democratic citizenship and to capture that fact that you win and lose, and both of those things are part of being a democratic citizen. Lots of times people really object to my use of the word sacrifice. They say, well, look, yes, people in the military, they sacrifice, obviously, for the good of democracy. But, you know, if somebody loses out in a policy debate, that shouldn't be called a sacrifice because maybe in some sense their life course has been diminished. And why should that happen for them? And so there's a sort of worry about the idea that sacrifice could sort of make it too easy to lower our standards for what we're expecting from democratic politics. So I don't think that's the case. I think we need um, the concept of sacrifice precisely because at the end of the day, you have to believe in shared decision making if you're going to be able to stay committed to democracy. And the problem with shared des- decision making is just that you know it can never be the case that everybody always gets exactly what they want. So you have to be willing to say, OK, yes, I sign on for the whole package. I don't love every piece and part of it. I can see ways in which I think it could be better. But I'm going to sign on to the package deal. And over time, I'll, I'll keep working on the things that I think aren't great. Um, and I will be happy about the things where I, I convince people and change things and so forth. But I'm, I'm here for the package deal. Um, and that's kind of where the concept of sacrifice comes in, That For a democracy to work, everybody's got to be committed to the package deal, which means everybody's giving up something.
1: All right. Something you write about in the book is this idea that we need to recognize that the feeling of sacrifice is subjective. And um, you don't exactly define how subjective it can be. But something that I think about from my work covering policy debates and elections is simply the feeling of loss, right? The feeling Mm -hmm. of going along with a system that is now spinning out of what feels like your control is a kind of sacrifice, right. staying committed to the system under those circumstances. Right. And that's why I, I was so interested by your idea that vigorous forms of citizenship can help deal with the problem of sacrifice. Can you talk a bit about how?
0: Sure. Well, let me um, take this abstract conversation and try to make it concrete um, with a hard example, a hard case. Um, so I think that um, a lot of the politics that we currently have right now is um, in reaction to marriage equality, reflect the dynamics um, of the sort of subjectivity of an experience of sacrifice. So marriage equality achieved with Obergefell v. Hodges from the Supreme Court, an incredibly important decision that established sort of equal right for all to marry. And a democracy requires a foundation of equal rights in order to operate. Equal rights do limit some people's ability to do things to other people. They're giving something up. At that limit case where um, you know, sort of you're protecting a basic set of rights, um, I don't use the word sacrifice. so I don't consider the things people give up to protect the basic structure of rights as sacrifices. Nonetheless, they may experience them as a loss. And that loss is something that needs to be understood politically so that we are also responding to that. So there's obviously really powerful, strong arguments about religion and the desire to protect ways of life um, that flow from religious commitments and that relate to particular conceptions of marriage and that sort of thing. One does have to acknowledge um, the force in people's life of these kinds of religious commitments and think about what are the places in our culture and so forth where people continue to have autonomy and control over the way of life that they're building for their children, for their families and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's where then you end up having to have you know very kind of complicated forms of interaction among citizens where we accept sort of basic rights threshold for everybody, but we also recognize that we're going to have actually quite different judgments about ways of life and their value. And, you know, let's say I'm somebody in um, a same-sex marriage, I have to accept that not everybody's going to approve of that. Um, and that doesn't mean my rights should be in any way diminished. They shouldn't be. They need to be fully protected. Absolutely. But there is this sort of issue of how we give each other space um, to negotiate around experiences of loss as the culture that we are building together out of our difference evolves and changes with time.
1: Oh, I love that. I love the the term giving each other space there. I want to focus there, but I'm not sure I can get this next part exactly clear. So so let me give it a try. In the formulation you offer, uh, you talk about the hard truth is that some citizens are always giving up things for others. But the experience that I see in politics that I've even experienced as a member of a polity is that nobody ever acts like they're giving something up. You're you're winning it. You're taking it. You're taking it over tremendous opposition if you are lucky enough to win. Um, The Republican Party did not give up the Affordable Care Act to the Democratic Party, they fought it every single step of the way. And so by the end of a fight like that, and, and almost all fights feel like that to people in politics, it is very hard for the people who won to the extent they did win to then look at the other side and one, have a, a an ethic of charitability, because they did not feel like they were treated charitably, and two, to see what what, what is happening over there as a sacrifice. It's a loss, maybe, um, but not a sacrifice. They did not extend something in the spirit of political friendship. And so then it is hard to then in finally, after all of that, after all the slander and the fighting and the money spent and the losses, to then act as a beneficent winner, right? To to act in a spirit of um, political friendship, even as you have come through this grueling, grinding thing. And that feels to me like one of the very hard spaces of this. Um, I think marriage equality is a great example here. But just in general, we're going through very deep demographic changes in this country. There's shifts happening in power, but they're not given in a spirit of sacrifice. They're often won over in a very hard, difficult way. And there's something very appealing to me in the idea that we need to be almost thermostatic, that if you're winning, then more is demanded of you in your citizenship, in the way you treat um, others, because you're going to have to compensate them for their feeling of loss. But by the time you are winning, you are in the worst possible position to feel charitably because the cost of winning is often grueling on a psychic level.
0: So that is beautifully put. Um, I think you put your finger on it, um, that um, more is demanded of winners in any given political moment. And it is the job of the winner to make the ongoing possibility of political friendship real. So then you're asking a question about, so what's the psychology of that? You just pointed to the grueling nature of our conflicts, their sort of total nature. Um, And so that's where for me, and again, I I honestly, some of I don't know how to get to this in practical terms. But for me, that's where the sort of motivation of just loving democracy all the way down is so important, because it's the love of democracy that has to compensate for the pain and conflict of the actual contests of democracy. And it's the love of democracy that has to sort of re-motivate a person to reach out and incorporate the losers and to ask the question of, okay, well, given your loss, what's the way of acknowledging that? Or what's the way of thinking about what question comes next for you, given the sort of shifted landscape and the things that you care about? So, you know, Mitch McConnell said something Like, you know, along the lines of winners make policy and losers go home. And I think that does kind of capture the moment that we live in now. And I think it's exactly wrong. Um, And it really should be that winners, what you've won is simply the leadership chair, and it's the leadership chair to incorporate everybody winners and losers in the policy making process. So it's not like winners get to make policy and losers go home. no, it's like winners get to chair the process in which we all make policy. And you know this will probably seem like a stretch, but this is like Lincoln at his greatest, right is sort of that's why it is you know with charity for all and so forth um, because he's the winner and it's his job to rebuild a process where he's just chairing something but pulling everybody into the process. Um, and again, you know, he, I believe, was motivated by the deepest possible love of democracy. And there is a real psychology to that love. And again, it's a love that connects to that feeling of human empowerment that democracy makes possible. How we can tap into that for ourselves again is the question that I have.
1: And and Lincoln and, and the aftermath of Lincoln feels to me like one of the truly hard cases of this, because in a lot of our historicity now of that time, uh, I think it is widely believed of people of a progressive elk anyway, that the great mistake and one of the great mistakes in American history is after Lincoln um, is shot and is succeeded uh, by Andrew Johnson, there is such a bending over backwards to bring the South back in, the white South, I should say, back into the political process, that the promise of reconstruction, the promise of multi-ethnic democracy is relatively quickly abandoned. And you could look at this from our perspective now, um, and, and the conversation we're having now, on the one hand, as an effort to compensate what is a tremendous at that point, um, loss among uh, among the losers. And on the other hand, as a great injustice because there, because there was truly at that moment a fight that did not have uh, necessarily positive some ways to resolve it. So how do you how do you think about that in this framework?
0: You're absolutely right. And the end of Reconstruction was a moment where, I think it's the, you know, the politics of that are complicated. I'm not sure that the um, motivation for it was really bending over backwards. I mean, in some sense, what Lincoln left behind was a pretty tough regime. And the problem was that his kind of tough love picture um, was abandoned for the sake of very, you know, nuts and bolts kind of electoral gain. Um, But at any rate, um, so let's look, what's the tough love position? The tough love position is um, here's the bright line about rights protection, and the federal government is going to bright line protect rights, period. (laughs) And no um, sense of loss around that basic rights protection framework counts as sacrifice, all right? So the things that count as sacrifice that we will honor and try to respond to and figure out, well, what's another way of asking that question? have to come inside the bounds achieved by basic rights protection. So that is um, a sort of drawing a line in the sand. Um, and that, and I'm not, you know, it's obviously not an easy thing because part of the point is that we have been fighting over time about what counts as basic rights protection. But the fact of the matter is that question has been clear for a very, very long time. Um, And that's one where at the end of the day, we, um, you know, really have to be grateful for the way in which the civil rights movement um, ended Jim Crow and put very clearly On the table, um, you sort of with, you know, finally the full application of the Equal Protection Clause, um, clarity about the sort of basic rights framework that the federal government will guarantee for all, thereby delivering, as per the Constitution, protection of Republican government for everybody. Um, And that one is just non-negotiable. But it's non-negotiable for a good reason, because basically, if you can't guarantee that for everybody, you don't have the thing you claim you're building, namely democracy or republic, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, there's a non-negotiable, no question about it. Um, There's still lots of stuff that we fight over inside the boundary of that non-negotiable rights protection.
1: I think tough love is actually a very useful concept here because something that is difficult in politics is people want to map the nature of your position onto the way you advocate for that position. Um, And I see this a lot in kind of symbolic online political communication terms. The more strident you are, angrier you are, the more you kind of draw your lines brightly, the tougher your position is believed to be. Um, and something that is within the tough love framework, I mean, when you think about that as, say, parents with a, a child who is misbehaving or has actually gone into a, a truly wayward um, dimension, is that sometimes the remedies there can be quite severe, right? You're grounded, mm-hmm. you're going to um, a boarding school, um, but they can come still from a place of love and a place of uh, temperamental or demeanor wise understanding. And I think mm-hmm. those two things are very hard for people to hold at the same time. It feels like you should be signaling how angry, like how if your position is going to be extreme, then it has to be signaled in your demeanor, too. It should be angry. Um, right. But if you can separate those two things out, if you can have the position that is moral and a demeanor that has some of the the, the difficult work of citizenship that you define, that that feels to me like a space where you see some of our greater statesmen and women um, in the past existing.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and maybe another way of putting this is that I think we've begun to um, mix up a few different things. So there is boundary setting work that has to be done, and I would say that that boundary setting work has to um, attach to the basic rights framework. Um, and then um, the I think the challenge that we have is that lots of people actually. Let me let me back up. Let me let me say that bit again. Um, so. I do think that boundaries have to be set. And for me, the boundaries have to be attached to the sort of basic rights framework. Um, And then, though, I mean, this is where the sort of love part comes in. You've got folks who say they're a boundary breaker, but if they come back in and decide that they're ready to live within those boundaries, live within those borders, they're back in. You know, no permanent ostracism, no permanent sort of stigma attached to them for the fact that they left the boundaries at a certain point. And that, I think, is the attitude that we've lost, so now, I and mean, for one thing, you know, yes, we're having fights over exactly how boundaries should be set. Some people think there is just a bigger space than just basic rights protection picture that I'm advocating for here. Um, but then beyond that, when people sort of cross what, you know, we ourselves think are sort of the boundaries of good politics, um, we attach such stigma to them that they become people with whom we never want to associate. Um, and even if they change their position or came around in a different kind of way, it's not clear that we'd be willing to remove that stigma. There's sort of no way to sort of make up for um, previous bad choices, um, for example. That's the sort of degree in which we've sort of moralized our political space. And I do think that is something that we need to walk back from. um, And we need to figure out ways to open up spaces for genuinely being able to interact with each other in a spirit of love. And I say in a spirit of love, rather than love directly in that case, because um, a part of it is about you know walking, walking the walk, sort of doing the actions of the thing, even if you don't necessarily feel it. Um, and this was a kind of really powerful insight of Martin Luther King Jr. It's also a really powerful insight of my favorite ancient Greek philosopher, Aristotle, that things like friendship and love are ways of being with people. They are habits and practices and things you do, ways you listen to them, ways you take their interest into account and so forth. And you can learn all the skills of doing that regardless of how you actually feel about any particular person. And so I think, you know, King's really important insight was you've got to bring that spirit of that way of doing things into every contest, every conflict, because it's the only thing that opens up the possibility for peace post-conflict.
1: I want to try an idea related to that on you. So um, I had Elizabeth Anderson on the show a couple months ago. And we talked a bit about her differing ideas of uh, luck egalitarianism, which for this, for the purpose of this argument, I want to sort of define as thinking about inequality defined around resources, um, and then democratic equality, thinking about equality as defined in sort of relational participation in a democracy, equality between you and me and how we relate to each other. And something that I've been thinking about with the left recently is that the left is very forgiving in terms of its view of resource inequality. You can do terrible things, but you should still be entitled to resources, right? You can be kind of a bad person um, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in left um, leaning uh, concepts, and but you should still have health care. Um, you should still have tax credits. You should still, if you've done terrible things and, and gone to jail, you should eventually be forgiven and, and brought back into society um, in, a, in a material way. But it is not very forgiving in terms of uh, like democratic equality. There's a lot of effort, it seems to me, at least in the discourse, to write people out to to not to not be sort of oriented towards pulling them back in, but to say, no, you you've you've been canceled. <laughs> and something that seems important to me is extending that material forgiveness, uh, that forgiveness we extend towards. All kinds of decisions should not write you out of being able to live a basically decent life, of having the resources to live a decent life, into the democracy that we should be oriented doing hard work of forgiveness. To even if you've said bad things or, or held bad positions, we want you here, and we're trying we're trying to make it possible for you to be here. I'm curious if that if that reads as a reasonable distinction to you.
0: So um, I wonder slightly, I guess, about the concept of forgiveness here. Um, I think I think about this somewhat differently. Um, so I would have said it's not exactly that in the case of material resources, we're forgiving people for being bad people. I would have said that um, we think that there's a certain sort of uh, baseline of support that human need, beings need in order to have a chance of flourishing. Um, and then they, that baseline is maintained. People suffer consequences when they err and so forth, and those things can live together with each other. Um, That said, I do think a sort of story of redemption and the fact that we we can and should be forgiving of people who have done really terrible things um, is an important part of thinking about, for example, punishment. Um, On the democracy side, I think, I guess I would want to hold off on using the concept of forgiveness there because I guess I would want to, first of all, raise a question about judgment, the kinds of judgments that we're putting on each other, right, in the sense that forgiveness matters when we have judged each other to have done a bad thing. And I guess um, just to be completely frank, I think that we judge too quickly in our political interactions. And I would want us to sort of walk back from the kind of judgmental nature of our politics to some extent prior to talking about forgiveness, if you see what I mean. So in other words... This is where it matters to me that, um, you know, sort of this this principle of kind of charitable interpretation um, that you sort of start out in politics in interacting with others by trying to ascertain what's the picture of the sort of human good of human value that's motivating this other person, even though it results in an action that I think is abominable. You know, they treat women this way or um, treat minorities in that way. Okay, so those are, you know, people are harassing, that's abominable. Um, Where does that come from in the first instance? Um, And what are the sources of that? And I think just I would like to see a kind of moment of understanding um, prior to judgment such that we can judge the actions um, and think about how to establish boundaries again so that the actions are required to change um, and, and separate that from... Um, you know, sort of the, the choices we're making about people. So that's slightly different um, from a picture of forgiveness, if you see what I mean. Um, I'm, I'm, I think we all need a bit more humility because there's the thing that I'm doing um, that I'm sure is abominable from somebody else's perspective, which is not visible to me. Um, and I just wish we could all recognize that a little bit more about ourselves um, as we step into the kind of gladiatorial zone of trying to fight for what we believe in
1: I think all of that is correct and 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 much more clearly put than i did and so let me try to hone this a little bit more something that is maybe a better concept in in the framework you're offering here than, than the forgiveness i offered is i'm not the philosopher so i will get this even still too too imprecise but it's something about belonging. Um, something that I see is that people are much more comfortable uh, with an idea of, we want you in this. We want you to belong when it comes to resources. Sort of no matter who you are, you should belong to this set of things we offer so everybody in America can can live a dignified life. And the people who believe that most, and this is, I think, the, the tension that I am often struck by, and, and I'm speaking here of Oh, I, I, I know on the left, but obviously there's more, Those criticisms we'll talk about on the right. But that same charity, that same belief that, that you should belong, in the way a lot of the discourse happens, and the way a lot of the arguments happen, it does not seem to me that we are as eager to have people belong into the democracy itself, into the conversation, into the set of people whose opinions can be respected. And because I think that people value their own dignity and their group's dignity so deeply that that is often a much more powerful motivator than material resources and is certainly from the Elizabeth Anderson view of a very important part of democratic equality. I think a mistake is made. I think that we, the people on the left often believe that they are offering an equality. And so if they, if folks are voting against them, they're voting against their own self-interest. But to people who feel that who sense um, that their quality is based on the respect people have for them when they don't feel respected when they feel that people are trying to write them out of the conversation to call their opinions backwards wrong indecent to, to, to actually like pull them out of where they are part of the discussion they react to that much more strongly and from this other perspective they may be right they're even if the left is trying to ensure them a kind of resource, a rough resource equality, not full equality, but more than we have now. It is it, they sense that they're being denied a kind of dignity and cultural and small d democratic equality that even if they wouldn't call it this, people sense pretty deeply and that that is a a, a mistake, that that ethic of belonging and wanting everybody in and wanting to, to to really fight to have everybody in no matter what else they've done, that that is that, that should be a more thoroughgoing ethic than at least I see, in um, national politics.
0: Yes, um, I think that's very well put, and I would agree with that. Um, And so let me just share some of the sort of terms I use in my own mind to think about these kinds of questions. So, um, yes, I think that democracy has to start with a basic conception of everybody belonging in the conversation. And again, for me, rights violations put people outside of the conversation. They can recuperate that. They can be rehabilitated from that and so forth. But for me, that's the boundary line. And then inside that space, people can say all kinds of things, have policy views that people find quite appalling and so forth. But that's where we have to start with the kind of charitable conversation that starts from that, well, what matters to you and why point of view? Like, let me at least understand before I decide how to respond. And the reason that matters to me is because that's what opens up space for people to bring their authentic selves to conversation about politics. I think you'll find in a lot of contexts now that sort of meaningful political conversation is hindered by the fact that people can't bring their authentic selves, because if they feel like they actually say what they think, that they'll be judged in a way that generates social ostracism. And so that seems to be really counterproductive, because at the end of the day, the democratic conversation requires bringing in like all the knowledge that people differently situated in different places have so that we kind of like try to get like as much knowing, as much knowledge, as much experience as possible into our shared decision-making. And the only way you can get like all that rich knowledge working together is if everybody can authentically be in the conversation. So you need that charitable space that is a notion of belonging so that people can authentically be there. But then there's a second problem, which is that basically... Some particular political positions you can take um, positions on either side of marriage equality or abortion or affirmative action, etc., um, are experienced in conversation as existentially threatening. So I feel like if you advocate X position on abortion, then like my life existentially is immediately threatened, and that I think is where everything gets really hard. Um, and so that's where um, the you know sort of. From my point of view, it's really important that for the person who's experiencing existential threat in the conversation that they be able to say so and that people on the other side then have the obligation of like listening to that. Like, well, where is that existential threat coming from? So for me, for example, in the context of debates over freedom of speech, I like to pair the concept of freedom of speech with Um, an ethic of trustworthiness. So we all have a legal right to freedom of speech. Like we can say a whole heck of a lot of stuff, including a lot of hurtful stuff. But then we have a moral obligation, in my view, to use our speech rights to prove ourselves trustworthy to our fellow citizens. So then that's a case where like if my policy position is like existentially threatening to somebody else, like maybe I'm like just completely against affirmative action and that is existentially threatening to a minority student um, in the conversation or something like that then I have the sort of job of listening and understanding, like, where is that existential threat coming from? And what is the sort of field of ways of responding to that? Because that kind of experience of existential threat is not acceptable. So that's where we then have to, like, for me, that should open up a kind of more creative space for policymaking where we take seriously you know, the things that people feel as existential threats and like try to open up a bigger field of possible solutions to them so we can get out of binary sort of back and forth between positions that are hardened and so on. So, Just to summarize that, I mean, the kind of key concepts I was trying to put on the table there are that democratic, successful, healthy, vigorous democratic conversation depends on everybody's being able to bring their authentic self to the the conversation. And that requires everybody sort of taking an attitude of starting out by asking, well, what matters to you and why? And let me understand that. And then the second thing I'm putting on the table is the notion that there are things that people can say that are experienced as existential threats and then when people are having that experience we have to hear them and take seriously why and try to open up a bigger field of creative solutions in the policy making space
1: i think there's a lot of wisdom in that and and one thing i will say is that i think a huge mistake being made right now among many people who think of themselves as free speech advocates on the right is that they're deeply dismissive of the ideas of safety of the ideas of feeling unsafe in part because that's not a primary experience for them, and so I think of somebody like John Haidt, who I respect. Much of his work, he's been on the show. I, I I think he's a very thoughtful person, but a disagreement I have with him is he listens to students and others say this makes me feel unsafe, and his reaction is, "Well, of course you're not unsafe. You're here in a college. It's all." But if you're if you have gone through life, something I've been sensitized to, um, in my reporting, is you've gone through life continuously feeling unsafe then that language and that feeling is more at hand. And as the political conversation has opened up, I think it's become a much more important part of people's own political experience to take seriously, that safety is something that at a certain point you can begin to take for granted. And then the idea that a political conversation make you feel unsafe, it becomes very remote. But if you've not been able to take safety for granted, then the idea that a political conversation can make you feel unsafe is not remote at all. It's very close at hand because the boundary between you and safety is um is is pretty weak. Is It's very permeable. And, and that's a place where I think that our conversations right now have gotten very... Complex because on the one hand, to your point, I think that there is a tendency on the left to write people out by saying you're being you're you're being rights violating maybe when you're not, but also Mm -hmm. you're being um, offensive. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're you're, you're making me feel unsafe. And then a tendency on the right to write people out by saying, on the one hand, you're practicing a particularistic form of identity politics that denies the ability to have democratic debate, which I think is a basically ridiculous concept, but nevertheless is, is a common argument. Or you're just being ridiculous. You've adopted a language that doesn't allow us to have a conversation. And so rather than exploring where that language comes from, um, what I'm going to say is that uh, this is this is now not a rational conversation and we don't need to have it. And I think we're we're asking a lot of people to always be arguing from our premises. But, you know, for that, and this goes for me too, it is very hard sometimes to walk over to somebody else's premises and see it from their perspective. And it, it's something that um, very, very few of our spaces of democratic deliberation, be they Twitter or cable news uh, and, and so on they're not built for that. And, and it's hard, It's a lot to ask of people.
0: It is, um, but it is an askable thing. Let me just say one thing about the concept of safety. And then let's, let me come back to that issue of trying to see things from other people's premises. Um, on safety, I have to admit, this is a subject that I've begun to kind of, you know, it makes me chuckle, frankly, because it is a concept that applies on both sides of the political spectrum. So Conservatives use it to criticize identity sort of politics um, coming out of student activism on the left on college campuses and so forth, but at the same time, at the same token, um, I have been for the last few years having sort of routine experiences of being. Asked to make sure that I open up sort of space and conversation in a meeting or a classroom for for conservative students or conservative members of the group who don't feel like they can speak up because they're in the minority, and I'm like, "Whoa, people! Like that's the same safety issue. (laughs) It's (laughs) exactly the same thing, both sides. So like, let's just all admit that we've got to like work harder to open up conversational space for everybody, recognizing exactly the challenge of bringing your authentic self into a space where you're worried about being judged, and that's just you know across the board." everybody's dealing with these issues. So although conservatives wield this as a critique, in fact, they're actually expressing it themselves, too, when they sort of worry about what it's like to be um, in a minority group um, where people are mostly left-leaning and things like that. So just to say that out loud, I think that um, we could all just laugh at ourselves on that one some. Um, And then on the second point, um, so I have this exercise I've developed for groups that I love to do, and I could um, send you. I have a sort of a Google form link that I use for it um, that you might enjoy playing with. But it's called a sort of shared values exercise. And what it does, a couple of basic steps. Um, it all sort of turns around this question of like, what matters to me and why? And how do I share that with other people? And how do I hear what matters to other people and why? And so basically, it asks people to start by identifying an issue of concern to them in the sort of our political universe um, to say something about what emotion they have connected to that issue. And then it gives them a kind of long list of possible personal values, things they might care about that explain why they care about this issue and have that emotion. So everything on that list from um, dignity and equality to beauty and faith and uh, prosperity and safety and sustainability, you name it, like anything you can think of that a person cares about is on that list. And then they have to sort of say something about what would would count um, concretely in the world as sort of realizing this value they care about in relationship to that issue. Then comes the sort of harder step, which is then they're sort of asked to say, OK, well, here's a smaller list of shared values that come out of the democratic tradition. So that's like liberty, equality, liberty and justice for all, um, sort of unity, democratic unity for the political system, a few things like that. And then the question is, like, which of these shared values um, sort of most resonates to you and how do you connect your personal value to that shared value? And the basic idea there is that, um, yes, like this is a huge, crazy, diverse, wonderful world where there's so many different ways of being in the world and different ways of life. And we're all going to have different value sets. They're never going to be like perfectly overlapping across the entire society. And that's cool and great. And it's like part of what's beautiful about America Uh, But then it is also reasonable to recognize that democracy rests on a couple of sort of set of ideals. And so we have to have some sort of sharing across those, some sort of overlapping consensus, if you will, among them. And we have to each have a way of connecting our personal values to some of those shared values. And so the, the exercise asks people to do that. But then the last step of it that I do, and when I'm lucky, I get to do all three steps, or I sort of ask people then next to say which value on that list of shared values resonates the least for them and why. And so, for example, the people who picked equality on the list of shared values typically then say freedom and vice versa, because we have a sort of big freedom and equality split in the country. Um, and then the, the job is to have people to share with each other what they picked and why, and to sort of start talking about how they put these packages together. Um, and my experience of this is that it opens up people's eyes um, to, like, you know, the reasonable grounding that their fellow human beings around them have for very different policy points of view and orientation. So we don't have a lot of space for that kind of reflection on each other's kind of values and commitments in our public life. Um, It would be great to have more space. Um, I've been experimenting with it in a variety of different sort of settings and places, uh, different kind of gathering groups, nonprofits, groups of teachers, groups of political officials, um, groups of scholars and things like that. Um, And I find it sort of every time I get to do this exercise, um, incredibly rewarding.
1: So I, I want to go back to something else you were talking about, uh, that the, the need to somehow ground a respect for democracy or a love of democracy in these conversations with also the stakes of it. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the "The Infinite Finite Games book and, and, and that whole concept set.
0: I am not. So fill me in.
1: So there's a guy named James Carse, and he wrote a book a number of years ago, very, very strange, fascinating book. It's very uh, – it's like a set of cones almost. But the idea is that there are infinite games and there are finite games. And infinite games are games where the, the, the point is to keep on playing forever. And finite games are games where the point is for somebody to win. Uh, and – You know, some things are an infinite game, like democracy itself. The point in in democracy, in American democracy, is for it to keep going, for it to Mm -hmm. not collapse into like a warlord state. Um, But within that, there are a lot of finite games, whether or not you pass the Affordable Care Act or rejoin the Paris Climate Accords or, um, you know, pass abortion laws or whatever they might be. And one of the the things that seems to me to be very hard about attaching people to an ethic of democracy and to uh, a connection to democracy is that the finite games have very high stakes. I mean, they really are life or death, whether or not we go to war in Iraq, whether or not we end the death penalty. And then asking them to take a step back and not pursue an all-out form of play. Uh, norms-breaking, boundaries-breaking, extra-political even form form of, uh, of of effort to win um, requires a lot of attachment to the idea that you're in an infinite game too, except that for you, the game may not be infinite. For you, the game may be actually life or death, or it may be life or death for people in your family, or whether or not your spouse gets deported, or a hundred other very severe potential consequences. Um, and and that. That seems to me to be one of the, the real nuts of all this right now, that as the stakes of American politics are getting higher, as we become more polarized, as the parties and coalitions become more different and are pursuing much more different uh, visions of the good life, that asking people to keep looking at it as an infinite game when the finite stakes are so high is really tough. Um, and it's on the one hand, it, it is necessary, but on the other hand, when you end up in an argument about this, and I often do um, in, in, in my line of work, it is very hard to make the argument for treating it, um, for, for trying to take a step back and not use every tool at your disposal, given um, the, the tangible right now stakes, as opposed to that abstract idea of democracy still being healthy in 50 or 100 years.
0: Right. That is a super helpful framework. Um, so thank you. Um, it does capture exactly what we're talking about. So, I guess there are a few different things I would want to say about it. Um, the first has to do with infinite games and the fact that infinite games are life and death. Um, so, let me, that'll be the first one. I'll come back to that in the second one, but just to name it. The second one then is about how do you lower the stakes of the finite games. And I think both of those things are part of responding to the dilemma that you've pointed to. So, on the infinite games piece, um, there's a long, long history behind this, but it is the case that. Um, we, I think, have come mistakenly to prioritize what we think of as substantive justice outcomes, even um, above democracy. So, for example, um, we do prioritize issues of distribution of wealth um, above making democracy something that lasts. And you can go down the line for any given policy area. We prioritize healthcare, we prioritize climate, et cetera. We prioritize a whole long list of things above democracy. And in some sense, that's because those do, we feel the pressing urgency, the pressing sort of life and death urgency of those. But the fact of the matter is that democracy is also life and death. Um, Democracy is the political form that is most protective of life um, over the long term. Um, When political regimes devolve into forms of autocracy, um, they typically bring with them forms of arbitrary killing and death and so forth. Um, So at the end of the day, the infinite game is a life and death game. I mean, the problem is the timescales of the life and death are not as immediately apparent to people but we are watching in Hong Kong right now exactly what it meant to forget that the infinite game of democracy is is a life and death game because when Hong Kong was given over to the British um, the view was you could have you know make economic prosperity and well-being and kind of rough market economy without democracy but the fact of the matter is you give up democracy you give up everything at the end of the day, you can't protect any of that other good stuff. So, from my point of view, we actually have to like a lot of work to do to rebuild understanding and recognition that the infinite game of democracy is life and death, and should have the top place on our agenda. Like it should be the first policy item on any presidential candidate's policy platform. From my point of view. Um, so, but then the second thing I would say about the finite games: how do you lower the stakes on those? Because yes, I mean. And, and you'll never get rid of all of them because for some people, the immediate policy question will be an immediate life and death one. The deportation example is a great example. But by the same token, I think this is where um, the sort of genius of federalism comes in and it's a sort of genius that we can make more of. So basically um the more decision contexts in which we have chances uh, to build good things for our life, the lower the stakes in any one of them, and that's one of the reasons the U.S. system has worked because we can, you know, address some issues at the sort of national level, but then we can like take the pressure off by letting people have different answers in different places, and then you know people to some extent like, move. You use kind of good old Albert Hirschman's exit, voice, and loyalty framework. If like that state level solution isn't working for you, you, like go to another state. And so forth. And so that's an example of how you take the pressure off of something. And, you know, at the end of the day, that was one of the really hard things about healthcare: is that sort of a zone that had had pressure taken off of it stakes wise by like living at the state's level was really federalized. Um, And so the stakes were kind of like really ratcheted up on that one. I happen to think that's a good thing that we needed to ratchet the stakes up on that. But that helps explain some of the dynamics of that particular case. So and, you know, I think with immigration policy as just an example, that's another Thing that matters. I think, you know, it used to be the case that um, cities and states and the federal government had sort of different regimes for what kinds of um, even modes of participating in politics immigrants could have. So it used to be the case. Well, there are still some cities in America where um, non-citizens can vote in municipal elections. I think that's a great thing. I think there should be diversity of solution set sort of around the landscape. And then that can take the pressure off of particular policy issues.
1: Yeah, I think that that question of when do you move towards federalism can really help here. But I I think that ends up in in the hard issue of this, or or the hard trade-off sometimes of this, which is I think the criticism somebody would make of the position we're putting forward here is. To what degree does approaching democracy in this way require accepting injustice in a deeper way? Um, if you are going to say that we're going to let immigration policy or healthcare policy be more federalized, and recognize certainly in healthcare policy that that you're not saying that, does this ethic of political friendship, does this ethic of trying to put democracy first, um, require you, particularly in a way the other side isn't, to, to disarm, to say, okay, we're just going to accept that because you have made because you are our opponents have made it so clear that you will not allow any advances without incredible levels of political opposition, that we are going to curb our ambitions for a a, a more just society. I guess the question there is, like, to what degree does treating as an infinite game and valuing that infinite game put you at a disadvantage in the finite games and in so doing end up creating a like a structural imbalance in the whole point of the democracy in the first place, which is hopefully uh, bettering people's lives, but also giving people the agency to better each other's lives. To what point are you then giving a kind of veto power to the worst actors?
0: So... um... Lots to say here, again. As it happens, I'm working on a book under the working title um, "Justice by Means of Democracy." So one of my personal intellectual ambitions is to break through the view that justice and democracy are tradeoffs with each other. So that there's a sort of really long sort of theoretical story behind all of that. But um just to um, try to sum up, um, basically, at the end of the day, I think that democracy, if especially if you can build a structure where there are lots of decision-making spaces, um, will yield more solutions, more broadly supportive of human flourishing than other forms. So that. If you win a justice game, uh, a justice gain in a non-democratic way in a particular context, you do so only over the, you know, sort of for a short term or in a non-durable way. So that is what feels like a justice gain now um, that you've sort of forced through and sort of broken the democratic apparatus in the process um, won't last. Um, Can can I ask you about that? Sure.
1: Um, How do you take the marriage equality example there?
0: So... Say more. Like, what do you mean exactly? By well, I think the
1: I think the criticism you hear from people on something like marriage equality or or differently on Roe is that you had a impo- a non democratic imposed solution there. So instead of it being passed or or put into the states where some states might you know uh, allow for marriage equality and other states would not, instead the Supreme Court just said one day there's a constitutional right to gay marriage. And that what what many people would say sort of in a framework, I think a little bit like the one um, you're putting out is like that was the problem. And on the other hand, that that victory looks very durable to me. It it looks like it um, activated something that is going to be very hard to put back in the bottle. And so I'm just curious how you see that example, sort of one of the bigger rights um, advances in recent eras, becoming at least ultimately in the way it truly happened in through one of the least democratic institutions in American life.
0: So I would actually disagree with you about your account of what happened with marriage equality. Actually, I see it as, in fact, a democratic um, example, a beautiful democratic example. And Heather Gerken at Yale Law School has written really effectively about this. But basically, the courts actually, you know, lagged behind policy changes at municipal and state level. So there was a policy cascade underway. And alongside that, as I know you know, um, you know, massive changes in public opinion um, and those massive changes of public opinion were the result of really um, concentrated, intentional work on the part of marriage equality advocates, who they, they you know changed the frame of argument, um, really stressed the issue of equality of rights, um, changed their approach to the question altogether, and really transformed American public opinion. Um, Diva Woodley at the New School has written brilliantly about that second point. Um, and so there was like a whole heck of a lot of Democratic pre-work um, that went on before the court thought the decision was reasonable. So... As I understand Kennedy's reasoning in that decision, um, his view was that the democratic work had, in fact, transformed the landscape, transformed the meaning of the concept of marriage, transformed the rights. And therefore, what the Supreme Court was doing was responding to the democracy rather than the other way around. I think that is an accurate description and is what will make that particular change durable.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So I apologize. I interrupted you on that. So you were going on to some of the theory of the book.
0: I mean, you know, the main point is just so I mean, actually, the marriage equality examples are really good It's a good one because. The point there is that there was all of this democratic pre-work and what that democratic pre-work did among other things really importantly was change the culture of the country and in changing the culture of the country it anchors um, a durable change as you just yourself um, also pointed out Um, and that's one of the benefits of the sort of well-functioning democratic process is that at the end of the day when you get change it doesn't mean that there's no loss there's there will be sort of backlash and reaction and things like that that also have to be responded to and understood um, and, you know, there will be new kinds of legal questions that emerge that have people continue to contest. Those are very dialectical. But there will be a durability to it because of that preceding democratic process. And so then that justice gain will be permanent. Um, whereas when things are just sort of handed down... With um, You know, sort of autocratic leader or lots of young people these days just sort of say they wish that there'd be like an engineer, like a technocrat who's sort of like deliver solutions and so forth. Those things won't stick. Um, and again, you know, I do think Hong Kong is a really important example right now where, um, you know, there's sort of this extradition policy that comes down from on high. Um, And in that case, like, no, that's that's an injustice. I'm not suggesting that's an example of a kind of justice policy delivered sort of through autocracy. But the point is, the fact that, you know, citizens in Hong Kong were sort of exposed to the sort of this nature of legal change, it flows from the fact that they had as it happened, you know, been required to, forced to, chosen with sort of complicated mix, sort of give up democracy as the bedrock um, for their framework for pursuing justice and contesting justice issues. The the view is that uh, what democracy does is um, require that all affected be brought into a process of conversation and in so doing gives us a sort of epistemologically stronger foundation for decision making as well as a culturally more durable foundation for decision making so that you can more sustainably over time achieve just outcomes for a broad population, secure safety and happiness for everybody. Um, that's the sort of argument um, of the book by and large. And it is a matter of um, sort of rethinking what, what counts um, as a justice win.
1: That's really that's really helpful. And, and and so let me ask about another example in this. Um and to to put my cards a bit on the table, I'm caught in the thickets of an essay trying to work through this myself and um hoping you can help me through it. Um but but one of the things that seems is a rel- seems a relevant question here is how do you read the legacy of Barack Obama?
0: Oh. So
1: <laughs> Obama as a politician um yeah. in 08 comes in with a, a I think a lot of people have forgotten how central this was to his political appeal, but he's making an argument about – changing American politics, right? Hope Mm -hmm. and change is a a kind of systemic change, not just a policy change. And I think more so than almost any politician, national level politician in recent American history, he's doing so and and offering a theory that tracks much of what we're talking about here. It's a theory of citizenship, of political friendship, of recognizing that maybe the other side has a point. When you think about Obamacare, um, you know, there's a lot of effort in that to try to bring in industry stakeholders, Republicans, to let the gang of six do their operations and their work. Mm-hmm. And I think something that um, has to be grappled with in both directions is, one, instead of that working, um, Obama becomes the most polarizing president until then in history, although Donald Trump takes that uh, crown a couple years later. But it also ends in Donald Trump, right? It en- Not ends, but it leads to Donald Trump, right? Donald Trump is a counter-reaction among um, uh, on the right to Obama, who, again, you know, to the extent that that I think you could offer an ethic of political friendship to accompany what is a clear and visible and symbolic change in power regimes, he was trying to do that, really bending Mm -hmm. over backwards to do that. But by the same token, it's not just Trump, but I think the left, um, including just the the more liberal um, left, not just the Democratic Socialist left, has read the Obama experience and said— the mistake there, too, was bending over too far backwards in this ethic of political friendship, was underestimating the extent of the opposition, the degree to which you the fever could ever break. Mm-hmm. And so there's something about the Obama um, experience here that I think uh, is very difficult for, for this argument, not because he himself was an incredibly generationally historically successful politician because he was, but because so much less systemic good seems to have come out of that than I think one might have hoped, given this set of ideas and ideals in 2008.
0: Right. So it's interesting. Um, I worked, you know, in the 08 Obama campaign as a regional field organizer. So just to be transparent about my own um, commitments and so forth, um, I've been working on an essay, too, um, trying to think about the sort of longer arc of American history and why we are where we are. And so for me, I have ended up really thinking about where we are as um, coming from a lot of phenomena across several decades. So um, in that regard, I tend not to think that the problems Obama ran into were sort of specific to him, um, interestingly. I mean, not that he had no, um, you know, he had great gifts, great talents and so forth, and certainly also his own limits. Um, So that's part of the story. But If I were to sort of summarize um, the dynamic of his presidency in particular, I would probably point to um, a tension um, in his own spirit between Barack Obama, the organizer, and Barack Obama, the technocrat. And Barack Obama, the organizer, right, in 08, it wasn't just hope and change. It was also like this incredible do-it-yourself grassroots campaign, right? It's like the first iteration of push out the tools so people can organize their own communities around the questions that matter to them. The sort of healthcare care conversation really took, you know, got going, had legs under it because of how the campaign itself was structured and functioning. And that, you know, all honesty, I was like looking forward to seeing a lot of that um, in governance, uh, but then, in fact, what happened, right, was the recession, um, the 2008 market crash and so forth, the sort of terrible tanking of the economy meant that, you know, sort of, I think, reasonably so, um, Obama didn't have much of a choice other than to like, give the ship over to the technocrats. Um, as a part of sort of saving the economy. And then I think once that had happened, there was a kind of pattern locked in where um, there's like a the technocratic expertise um, sort of really led in the Obama administration. And expertise is super, super valuable. But um, I do think that there are real limits to it. And we need to sort of rethink how expertise connects to democratic politics and sort of the values direction setting of democratic citizens. So I, you know, remember, um, you know, in 2016, after Trump's election, hearing in you know, a couple of different contexts from economist friends comments along the lines of, um, you know, we all knew kind of watching globalization that it would be a sort of. 20-year transition. But I have to admit, like, I never really thought about what that would feel like for people, you know, living through it for 20 years, or what that would feel like for the particular communities caught in the transformation. And so, you know, I think one of the things that afflicts us is just that the sort of real disconnect between kind of technocratic approaches to policy and ordinary human experience, knowledge, wisdom, and so forth. And Obama should have had that as an organizer, but I think he kind of ended up sort of living more in the world of the technocrats and lost that thing that he brought um, in. And so I think from my point of view, that would be part of how I would analyze what happened.
1: I think there's a lot of insight in that. And and one thing that I've been struggling through in my uh, piece on this, which is, I think, very related, is that Obama at some point ended up making a choice between his priority of creating a more representative system and his priority of passing policy needed, um, even emergency policy through the system as it exists now. Uh, And and that's a very hard choice that any president is going to face. But he got in and Obama, the organizer, looked around and asked, you know, how am I going to get TARP um, reestablished or the stimulus passed or eventually the Affordable Care Act passed, saw what the Senate looked like and the House looked like and ended up becoming part of the very system that he promised to change because that was the quickest way to get something done for people who are suffering and I, I don't i don't really second guess that choice on some level but to me one of the reasons that that i wanted to ask you about this is that I've kept coming back to this idea that perhaps a more thoroughgoing understanding and ethic of democracy as the core value would have been a unifying answer there, that I think that when um, politicians, and particularly here, Democratic Party politicians, think about democracy, they think about process questions like voting rights, um, which are very important, uh, or they think about getting money out of politics, right? There's a a list of things you can see at NHR 1, which the House Democrats passed as their first bill when they came into power in 2019. And if you are going to cut the idea of democracy away from the idea of the material policies that affect people's lives quickly, then you're probably always going to end up choosing to spend your political capital on non-democracy issues, right? You're going to always try to spend your political capital on making people's lives better quickly because an election is coming up. But if you can think about democracy almost more in the uh, Elizabeth Anderson or Daniel Allen way of ensuring people's participation and ability to govern their own lives, then maybe it really does connect to questions like Medicare um, for more or for all. Or maybe it really does connect to something like Elizabeth Warren's co-determination plan so workers have more of a voice in their own companies. Or maybe it really does connect to a much broader agenda of just trying to give people the resources and power to have agency over their own existences at, at every level And in that world, I wonder if there isn't an ability to connect an agenda that is more about changing the system to the agenda of what you wanna get through the system simultaneously, building a kind of understanding that those things cannot be separated. It does seem to me that for democracy to be as important as as you frame it as, it has to be reconnected to people's lived experiences. It can't just be the, the, the platform on which politics happens. It also has to be connected to the things they want from politics. And I keep thinking that there's some way to think about democracy that, uh, again, sort of using some of Elizabeth Anderson's ideas about democratic equality, could make it part of as opposed to a separate choice from the more bread and butter issues that are often um, put in tension with it.
0: Yes. Let me just say yes, yes, yes. Um, I absolutely agree. And a lot of stuff I'm working on right now, things I'm writing, I'm definitely um, kind of moving in that Kind of direction. I also have the good fortune at the moment to be co-chairing a commission um, coming out of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences on the future of the practice of democratic citizenship, and this is work that's been been ongoing for about a year and a half, and we'll um, aiming we're aiming to deliver a report in May. Um, But that will lead really with that idea that we have to rebuild the sort of commitment to democracy, um, that that's a sort of priority actually for having um, a combination, like a system that combines political institutions and a healthy political culture um, to deliver good policy solutions for the country. So in other words, you know, we're like banging our heads against the wall on a whole number of different policy questions, immigration healthcare, climate, criminal justice reform and so forth. These are really important issues we have to be able to make decisions together about them. Well, why are we stuck? Actually probably not because of the actual kind of technical details of the policy question or probably not even so much necessarily because of the values dis- dis- disagreements that frame the conversation, but actually really just because like the underlying mechanism we have for making decisions d- together like is broken. So, yeah, like no, we're not going to solve any of these things unless we actually get back to the work of making sure that um, this democracy thing that gives us all an experience of empowerment and potential for flourishing can do its thing. So, yes, um, I think a democracy agenda is um, like it should be at the top. Again, I'll just repeat at the top of every single presidential candidate's agenda. And I think that the areas in sort of other areas of policy um, come after that um, and they all depend on it. So I do think what you've just laid out is absolutely the direction to proceed.
1: What does a democracy agenda include for you?
0: Um, You know, some stuff in the space of political institutions, some stuff in the space of civil society, and some stuff in the space of political culture. So in the space of political institutions, it includes things like uh, making um, putting federal elections um, on a national holiday and ideally on Veterans Day um, and connecting that notion of service, uh, what veterans give to what all citizens need to give to their country, like by paying attention, turning out, uh, right to vote. Um, using that right to vote and so forth. Um, Increasing the size of the House. I think we should increase the size of the House by 50. Things like automatic voter registration, universal registration, so a whole slew of stuff in regard to political institutions to empower voters. Um, a slew of stuff uh, with regard to um, ensuring the responsiveness of government. So I think that c- Congress people could do a much better job of uh, sort of through web forms and so forth, communicating on a weekly basis with enough members of their constituency to really um, sort of perm- to permeate altogether their constituency over time. Um, Ranked choice voting and redistricting, another hugely important part um, of all of this. Um, Definitely campaign finance disclosure laws that are a lot stronger, and even pushing forward on a constitutional amendment to make clear that corporate uh, money does not count um, as um, political speech. So, like, that's in the political institution space. And then in the civil society space, I think we really ought to be, um, you know, through something like a public media act um, and also um, through sort of regulation of social media companies, establishing a public purpose for social media um, and thinking about the way in which they, they, should serve that public purpose. Um, you know, toll roads, I sort of like to say, like it's not like the, 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 the rules of the road, the laws of the road don't apply on privately owned toll roads. In the, in the same fashion, the sort of laws that structure well functioning in the public sphere and our associational laws, um, speech laws and others need to be fully operative in social media spaces. And then we need public media social sites as well to support, um, you know, conversation that's productive in the same way that public broadcast was brought in in the 60s. Um, Then I actually think we also need a really robust initiative on civic education. Um, There is a policy cascade at work in the states um, and we could be, you know, really rebuilding K through 12 civic education. Um, It is a tragedy of profound proportions that we are at a state where among millennials, um, only something like 30 percent think it's essential to live in a democracy and the fact of the matter is that like, no, no democracy can survive if its citizens don't think democracy is essential. So like, we're basically on a kind of decline toward death unless we reverse that. And I think that civic education is an important part of that. Um, I think there's a lot we could do to invest in civil society infrastructure to support more bridging opportunities um, for citizens and across citizenly space. And in the space of um, political culture, I think we re- need to work really hard to sort of re-inspire a commitment to America um, and to one another. Um, And that's at a sort of emotional level and a cultural level. But actually, so one of the things um, I think that we ought to do is, um, you know, activate the network of state and territorial humanities councils to really engage communities um, around the country in thinking through how we narrate our history. And can we break through the fight we have over whether we tell a glory story or a gory story about American history? So um, we need an honest uh, story um, of America that is honest about the crimes and the wrongs and also honest about the achievements and the aspirations that built it in the first place and that. Um, give us a way of sharing a space and understanding who we are and where where we're going. So that was a long answer, but those are some of the things that I would put on a democracy agenda.
1: L- let me ask you about the education piece of it for a minute, because I, I I'll be honest that I I'm often skeptical of how much civic uh, education can do for uh, our. Broader political problems, how well it scales, how much people remember taking class in seventh grade. But I, I read as I was preparing for this uh, an essay you wrote about civic education and sort of understanding it not as a class but as the fundamental point of education and arguing that vocational education, vocation is the point of education, is a relatively recent uh, development. And I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that. What would that look like, and how is it different than what someone like me might think when they hear more civic education and then think, "Oh, good, like." You know, instead of taking one year of civics in high school, you take four. And like, what's that really going to do?
0: So I do think it's about having a bigger conception about what education delivers. So to succeed as a citizen, you have to be ready to engage with words, right? And sort of the first um, instance, like everything we do in politics, we do with words, Um, And so that means, you know, in some sense, the whole English language arts part of the curriculum is about civic education. Um, Are we really equipping students not just to write expository essays, but actually to um, to speak orally, to debate, to engage with each other charitably, um, offering arguments, counterpoint and so forth. So debate is something that has really fallen out of schools um, over the last couple of decades and deserves rebuilding. Um, And so the question is like, so yes, we're doing a lot with English language arts, but are we delivering it in a way that really supports civic capacity? The same thing is true with STEM education. It's a very startling thing that um, sort of increasing achievement for students on the STEM side of things correlates to declining civic engagement. So the better you do on the math SAT, for example, the less likely you are to vote or write to your local elected officials. Um, so, yeah, STEM education—we need to rethink it so that it actually supports civic participation. So it's true that I, I do think civics classes themselves have a specific role to play, and I'm, like, whatever, working on curriculum and thinking about that. I think it's hugely important. But you're absolutely right that the question of a civic education is a whole school question, and STEM is as important in that as anything else.
1: what that's such an interesting stat. What, why do you think that is? That doing better on the math SAT makes you more makes you less likely to do to to participate civically.
0: Correlates can't claim cause. Co- I can't claim a cause, right? But there's a correlation, right? So what the cause is, you know, nobody has ascertained. But but there's definitely a correlation, and it shows up elsewhere too. It shows up in terms of concentrations, um, majors in college, and things like that. So people who major in humanities, social sciences, education vote at much higher rates than people who major in natural sciences, um, and that is not a matter of self-selection. So the people who've done the studies on this have controlled for various um, elements of self-selection. So, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about the reasons people put out ideas such as in the sciences, you know, like there's a right answer when you're learning how to engineer something like there's a way to build the bridge so it doesn't fall down Um, and that people sort of take that expectation from the sciences and want to see a world of politics that works in the same way um, and don't understand that the world of politics is about value conflict um, and about context where there's like whatever, like at least half a dozen different possible pathways you could be on. And the path that you're going to be on is partly about the society kind of coming to cohere around a particular value directionality. So, you know, I th- but I think but there's no reason STEM education couldn't do a better job of bringing in exposure to the kinds of choices that connect to values. And in fact, you know, you sort of we look at the world of technology and what it's doing to us. And you can kind of see all over the place the fact that folks who have been educated in tech, you know, didn't have deep exposure to how to think about social context, how to think about the impact of um, institutional and technological change on human choice and possibility and so forth. So I think there's a lot of room to improve STEM education that would support civic capacity.
1: It's interesting. So I I moved to the Bay Area about a year ago now. And I have a lot of, because I'm a political person who lives among a lot of tech people, when I'm at, you know, dinners and reporting and so on, I end up getting into having a lot of political conversations with people who uh, are are high in these companies. And something that has struck me uh, is that... People who come from, I don't want to say the STEM mindset because that's too broad, but certainly from the engineering, the the software computer engineering mindset, I think something that you're acculturated to believe in that is that there is a right and most optimized answer.
0: Right. And for a
1: lot of things, that is true. uh, But for a lot in politics, not only is that potentially not true because you're dealing with uh, irresolvable values conflicts, there isn't a right answer to a, a disagreement in values sometimes, but also it ends up being very disappointing because you, you, you end up so far from it. And so there can be a kind of retreat to these spaces where, that are more conducive to, if you can figure out the right answer, you can apply the right answer. Um, and if you have not, been accultured into some of what you're talking about, right? Taking, I don't exactly want to call it a delight, but seeing the value in the ongoing messiness and recognizing that somehow holding that messiness is part of the value, is part of the long-term infinite game level right answer that uh that it's very that it's very disillusioning if that isn't something that that you have learned how to do. and in fact, if kind of everything you've been taught to do is about getting away from that, is about getting away from that messy, irresolvable kind of thinking, moving towards optimization, I think that politics can be a particularly frustrating place. Um, and also your ideas of how to operate in it can end up being very strong. Uh, I don't exactly want to call it strange, but I'm constantly hearing exceptionally, Esoteric and strange ideas of how to structure politics such that you would get some more optimized answer in every one, and it's often a, an effort to use engineering to get the messiness out of something intrinsically messy in a way that I think uh, just doesn't end up working.
0: Yep, I recognize all of that. So what I like to um, say about that is, um, as I see it, the issue is that um, when people are working on optimization, they can do that because the priority order of the values relevant to the space has been set, right? So like the first step is you order the values. And often in sort of tech context, the sort of top value is efficiency, right? Or there will be values about um, sort of profit maximization and things like that. But the point is that the technical problem that has to be solved is optimizing in relationship to a value set where the values have been put in a single order and that's stable and it's not going to change. Politics <laughs> precisely involves every single year, over and over and over again, relitigating the order of priority among the values. And that's why the technical approach can't deliver politics for us. And you need a very different kind of training and uh, cultivation of abilities in order to function effectively in the political world. Uh, You know, once you make decisions on value directionality, then there's various kinds of technocratic thinking that can bring in optimization ideas and help us achieve good policy solutions and so forth. But the important thing to kind of focus on is just that the real work of politics, the most important work of politics is that values directional setting. And that just is ongoing. It's that is the infinite game. um, No question about it.
1: That is a wonderfully clear way of putting that. There's a, a left critique that I want to engage here which is we've been talking a lot about political democracy. The, the democracy agenda you just put forward is, is very much focused around political um, culture and institutions and democratic uh, activity in, in a civic way. But the argument is there is no democracy uh, without economic democracy. And so first, I'm curious how you how how you think about that argument, how you think about the left critique that that folks sort of like you and me focus too much on political democracy and focus too little on the underlying question of economic democracy, which is necessary both for agency over your own life, because a lot of your life is lived in, in economic spaces like your workplace, but also for some semblance of uh, equal participation in civic life.
0: So, um, you know, I think that they're right, to be honest, that any strong account of political democracy has to answer economic questions and social questions. And that's really the project of my book. So it sort of proceeds by making a case for the prioritization of democracy um, and then moves from that to make a case for a sort of set of principles. So partly there's some connection to the work of a philosopher called John Rawls, um, and I'm sort of replacing his difference principle with a principle um, I call difference without domination. Um Anyway and so there's a second the book that a set of the, a portion of the book that focuses on applying that principle to the social space, and then a portion of the book that focuses on applying that principle to the economic space. Um, and so basically the way I think about it is that, um, what one needs for a political economy is to build a frame where you ask the question, um, what do we need to do to ensure that this economy is maximally empowering of the population in support of their democratic empowerment? Um, and so that question actually, as it happens, is very like the question that George Marshall asked um, when he had the responsibility for thinking about the reconstruction of Europe. So he saw this place was sort of devastated by war. And the question that he asked about the economy was, How do we structure an economy such that the conditions for democracy are possible? So it's not sort of how do we build the whole thing and build democracy, but it's like, you know, what do we know about economies um, so that they can be built in ways that empower people? Um, And so to some extent, that is for me about markets. I think markets can be very valuable, but markets constructed in particular ways, um, ways that that do constrain markets as well. Um, that pay attention to places where domination appears. So I am an advocate for things like workplace democracy. I agree with Elizabeth Anderson. I agree with some of the ideas that Elizabeth Warren is putting out there. But I also think it's about a focus on production first, you know, sort of and, or Jacob Hacker, who talks about predistribution. So it's not starting from a question of like, how do you distribute um, the fruits of a sort of necessarily highly unequal economic system? It's more about how do you structure um, a system in the first place such that it's generating egalitarian outcomes um, and, you know, it's like rebuilding that sort of healthy, strong middle that has always been an important part of any kind of stable democratic society. So I would also point you to a really great um, essay I think it's available online right now, sort of a work in progress by Danny Roderick and um, Charles Sable called The Good Jobs Economy, um, which focuses on this question of how you build a political economy around the concept of good jobs and around the concept of production and the need actually for um, kind of really strong, robust uh, democratic decision-making processes at many levels in the system in order to deliver that good jobs economy. So, that's, um, So I think the left critique is right to ask that question. I think the answers that we're getting from left politicians at the moment are the wrong answers. So right questions, wrong answers.
1: This is hugely clarifying for me. Um, This George Marshall quote you just gave me, or maybe paraphrase, but it seems to me you could then imagine a democracy agenda that is built around two separate questions, right? One is how do we structure political institutions such that democracy is possible? Then how do we structure the economy such that democracy is possible? Um, and then you could even imagine, like, how do we structure a civic education or the civic space such that democracy is possible? And I recognize they all depend on how you define democracy, but the idea of all of these things being uh, motivated by uh, an effort to create the conditions in which democracy can actually happen it seems sort of like the like a like an underlying value that can unite a lot of things that are often, I think, incorrectly left separate.
0: Yep. No, that's exactly right. In fact, I should probably say out loud the fact that sort of my first pass at this argument is coming out in book form in, in German as it happens um, this coming spring um, under the title political equality. But um, but yes, that's exactly right. I mean, the only difference that I would um, make would be to say that you know, you ask the question about how to structure political institutions for democracy. Then you ask the question about the economy, and how to structure it in support of democracy. Uh, but then there's also a question of how do you think about the social world? And organizing it in support of democracy. And I think in addition to questions of education, um, there's a lot that we can do about how we um, help organizations um, evolve in support of democracy. So you know, you look around um, our social world, our world of nonprofits and 501c3s, everything from colleges and universities to um, a lot of for- for-profit firms as well, insofar as their social org- org- um, organizations. Um, so the, the whole world of social organizations um, could uh, function in ways I think that are more supportive of democracy.
1: And this is, it sounds to me, this is part of where your focus uh, in your democracy agenda on the media, both the journalistic media and the social media space comes in.
0: Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Or another example would be I sort of um, did some work for the city of London to help them think through about sort of how does a city think about um building um, conditions for flourishing for an incredibly diverse population. Um, So a diversity agenda is relevant here too. Um, And I think a diversity agenda can be a much more exciting and energizing thing um, when you recognize that what it's doing is um, opening up the possibility and value of democracy by activating um, the resource represented by the human capital assembled in our our great cities, um, on our university campuses, et cetera.
1: I recognize that this is asking you to to explain books that are not yet out, but could you say a little bit more on the difference between the John Rawls difference principle and your coming difference without domination principle?
0: Um, sure. Basically, from my point of view, John Rawls made one um, very small but very consequential mistake. So basically, so he has a hugely important book, um, came out in 1971 called Theory of Justice, and a whole lot of our current policymaking landscape really derives a lot of its kind of core premises from this book, as well as from various forms of economic theory that were pertinent and kind of aligned. Um, But basically, um, for Rawls to build a just society, the first thing you have to do is secure fundamental rights. And then the second thing you have to do is address economic questions. And from his point of view, you address economic questions with what he called a difference principle, which is where you make sure that um, any given decision um, does not disadvantage the least well-off. So that any given des- uh, decision should make leave the worst off um, better off than they were or would otherwise be. Um, and so it actually is quite compatible with a very um, inegalitarian uh, political economic world as long as you're sort of doing a lot of redistribution, for example. But the reason I think this works in his system is because on the first plank, the sort of the first thing you're supposed to do of protecting basic rights, um, he has a sort of long list of rights and he builds on the liberal tradition um, in essentially dividing the rights into two categories. It's what we philosophers call a distinction between negative liberties and positive liberties. Um, So negative liberties are freedoms from governmental interference. Um, So freedoms um, of religion and freedom of expression and things like that. And then positive liberties are freedoms, too, freedoms to, to participate, to vote, to run for office, etc. And the sort of philosophical tradition for about um, a little more, well, almost two centuries had sort of split those into two separate things. And Rawls, when he sets out, says, you know, for me, they're not slit, split, they're co-original, um, co-creative and so forth. You need both set, the negative and the positive, the the protections from government interference, but also the opportunity to participate and to, to participate in self-government. Um, but in fact, as he works his way through theory of justice, any point that comes to sort of a hard choice, he lets the positive liberties be sacrificable. So he consistently, all the way through theory of justice, protects the negative liberties, but he does not consistently protect the positive liberties. Um, and so from my point of view, like that's the basic mistake. So... I'm trying to, uh, you know, make an argument about what just polity is based on the notion that positive liberty, the chance to participate in self-government is non-sacrificable, period. Um, And so like once you then establish that as your basic principle, um, political liberty or political equality, the right to participate, um, a way of defining it is um, to identify it as connected to the idea of non-domination. So if you can govern yourself, it means other people can't dominate you um, and nor can you dominate anybody else. And so... Um, That protection of freedom then becomes linked to a notion that we're all also sort of limited by non-domination, protected by it, and also limited in our behavior. The freedom protections are terrific for supporting the growth of difference, um, social difference, cultural difference, et cetera, economic difference. Um, Some people make more money than others because of choices of how to spend their time. Um, But then that difference can become connected to forms of domination And when it does, that undoes the the ground for democracy. So the principle of difference without domination is one that sort of basically is a way of framing how to ask the question of, uh, given the way in which freedom supports um, the emergence of difference in the social domain, in the economic domain, um, how do we also shape uh, those freedoms, those opportunities in such a way that they don't generate domination or that we can um, undo domination where it emerges? So that's a very abstract, technical way of putting the question of um, how do you make sure that your law of association, um, that your kind of media laws and supports um, support democracy? How do you make sure that your economic policy supports democracy?
1: That's super interesting. But 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 to, to actually give it the grounding, can you give me an example of a policy question that if you ran it through the the Rawls difference principle and your difference without domination principle, you'd get a different answer?
0: Well, I mean, so in the first instance, I mean, you know, at the crudest level, like the places he makes mistakes, I mean, in his view, there are certain kind of contexts of... Uh, material difficulty where people should accept foregoing political liberties for the sake of uh, material resources. Um, so, you know, and that, you know, he sees that as um, a place where it's not the just society. Um, but you know, it's in fact, it's, it's a non-ideal society, but the point is like in a non-ideal society, he thinks it might be okay that, you know, women don't have the right to vote in this particular non-ideal society because the conditions, you know, the, the need to advance material conditions sort of takes precedence. Um, that's what I disagree with. I think that, um, it's the political equality for all that's non sacrificable Um, so even in the face of material um, difficulties, I think you have to protect the democracy principle. Um, knowing that and protecting it over the long term, you will actually achieve more sustainable material gains as well. So that's then where the two pieces um, of the puzzle come together. That part draws a lot on the work of Amartya Sen, who's a sort of Nobel uh, Prize winning economist and philosopher and has done a lot of work on democracy in India um, and thought about the relationship between democratic um, practice um, and material well-being. He makes the point that um, no democracy has at the end of the day ever fallen into famine um, and that is a good way of capturing the relationship between democratic process um, and material well-being.
1: I love that. Um, I think it's probably a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you then, uh, we've been talking about your forthcoming book, but the question we always used to in the podcast is, what are three books you would recommend to the audience um, that have influenced you over the years?
0: So I really appreciated that question, and I decided to— um, You know, cheat slightly by giving you two essays and one book um, rather than three
1: books. That's even better. Everybody's busy.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I would recommend um, George Orwell's wonderful essay, Politics in the English Language, and um, Ralph Ellison's beautiful essay, um, What America Would Be Like Without Blacks, and Hannah Arendt's powerful, scary, thought-provoking book, Men in Dark Times.
1: Uh, those are all great um, recommendations. And uh, one of the things I, I loved reading your book was actually giving me some familiarity with parts of Ellison's work that I had not before. So
0: um, if, if you,
1: like me, only knew Ellison <laughs> for his fiction work, like Invisible Man, um, it is worth taking taking up the opportunity to read some of his more political essays. Um, Danielle Allen, uh, this has been an incredibly helpful, clarifying, wonderful conversation. So thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you, Ezra. Your questions have been fantastic, and I've appreciated
1: them. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Danielle Allen for being here. Uh, I have recently asked a couple questions at the end of these uh, uh, that you can answer by email. I've got an amazing emails uh, in, in response. I'm going to do it again here, which is this podcast, this conversation was very heavily about democratic practice, sort of about about understanding yourself as a member of a democracy, not just living in one, but but actively acting as a member of a democracy every day. And so I'm curious, what sort of you feel is your democratic practice? What do you do that kind of marks you as a member of a democracy, not in terms of voting, but how do you act within institutions or among strangers, talking to strangers, that feels like it resonates with her conception of this, um, that maybe the rest of the world doesn't see or that you just think is important in a way people don't always recognize. My email for that is Ezra Ezra Show at Vox.com. Uh, thank you to Tofa Ruth for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Gelb for producing. And as always, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production.